before June. Two Galavats returned having plundered a town in Angria's country and brought away 16 prisoners. 9th June. Returned our Galavats, having by mismanagement of the chief officer lost about 50 men and destroyed one town of Angria's. Entries from the official account of the British East India Company attack on Geria Vijaydurg on the western coast of India, 1716. In 1661, King Charles II of England married Portuguese princess Catherine of Braganza, partly to spite the Spanish monarch. England, however, lucked out because as part of the marriage treaty, Catherine brought to England a dowry that included the seven islands of Bombay, now Mumbai. This was the beginning of the British successes in Western India. Bombay was important in its early days not for its own sake. It was a sleepy little fishing village for the most part, but it was important due to its proximity to the great Western Indian trading port of the time, Surat. Surat in the 17th and 18th centuries suffered precisely because of the riches afforded by its location. It is from Surat that commerce flowed to the Arabian Peninsula and the Indian Ocean world beyond. Surat was also the preferred entrepot for pilgrims who went to Mecca during the Muslim holy month. Because of its prosperity, Surat became the focus of unwanted attention from different piratical groups and, for the British, this was an extremely difficult situation. Because even though Surat was under the Mughal dominion, as early as 1615, the British had set up a factory in Surat. Surat was the primary British port of trade and Bombay was the port that lent the British merchants in Surat some security. So the pillaging of their ships and general lawlessness on the Arabian Sea off the Gujarat and Bombay coast became a very difficult economic and political situation. Because for the British, piracy was a matter of not just trade losses. Right to tax the merchant ships plying on the Indian seas was also important to the British interests in developing their colonial imperial system on the Indian subcontinent. Over the 18th century, it was Britain's superior naval power that finally allowed them to beat back other European powers and colonize the subcontinent. The attack on merchant ships under British protection were therefore an attack on the emerging bonds between free trade and imperialism in the subcontinent. The attack on British on the sea was a threat to the British domination of South Asia. In the last episode, I talked about European pirates who made it impossible for the East India Company traders to do business on land and sea in South Asia. Pirates in the Indian seas were formidable and their large numbers disturbed trade along the western coast and between India and the Arabian Peninsula in a big way. But it was not just European pirates who were doing all this work. In 18th century coastal India, many different groups were involved in the semi-legal and outright unlawful plundering of merchant ships. 
Even though the British called them pirates, the fleet of Siddhis of Janjira, for example, were more organized, and as we shall see through the course of this episode, they were also mm, not really pirates. But there were other smaller plundering operations on the coast by groups such as the Malabaris, who were a mixed community of Hindus, Muslims, Christians and Jews. Then there were the Kolis of Gujarat, the Sankhanyas of Beit and the Wadals of Diu, who all carried out piratic operations in their own little zones on the Indian coastline. For example, the Kolis focused on the Bombay-Gujarat shoreline on the upper southwestern coast of India, north of Goa. The Malabaris always sailed south of Goa. However, these piratical attacks were not systemic. They were rather sporadic and spread out across the Indian coastline. But what happens when it was not one pirate with his motley crew who were casually ransacking, but a well-managed and efficient fleet commanded by a charismatic leader who led his troops in sea battle and wielded power on land as well? Of all these groups considered pirates or piratical by the British, there was one such group, efficiently managed and well-led, that gave British East Indian and other European trading companies a run for their money, quite literally. They were the Angres. In English records and in pirate history books, they're called the Fierce Angrias. In this episode, we shall turn our attention to the so-called Maratha Angria pirates who wreaked havoc for traders along the western coast of India, but especially for the British. Were they pirates or India's first freedom fighters? This is a question that we are exploring in this episode. This is the Masala History Podcast and I am Deepthi Murali. Join me as I take you on this fun ride full of gun battles and sword fights as we discuss the history of the seafaring Angre family. In the last episode, I described pirates as those living outside the law, but we also learned that law in an age before United Nations and legally drawn nation-state boundaries is subjective. In 17th and 18th century India, boundaries are almost literally lines drawn on sand. They changed every year, if not almost every other month. The waxing and waning of Indian powers with their constant battles egged on by European trading companies had created such political volatility that no sooner had a king gained territory in one part of the subcontinent that he was forced to rush to another part of his kingdom to secure it from a rival power. By late 17th century, the western coast of India from Goa all the way to the north was contentious territory. The Deccan Sultanates of the South that had nominally controlled portions of the western coast, known today as the Konkan Coast, were completely overrun by the Mughal territorial expansion into southern India under Emperor Shah Jahan and later Aurangzeb. The Sultanates completely lost their grip on the Konkan Coast when there were even more aggressive Mughal expansion under Emperor Aurangzeb in the late 17th and early 18th century. It is in this complex geopolitical world that the British East India Company encounters the Angrias, as they were called. 
the British from the beginning think of them as lawless, quote-unquote, Maratha pirates. But the Angris were not pirates in the traditional sense of the word. The Angris may not have upheld the European law of free trade, but they were, by design, not meant to, considering that their allegiance was not to the British East India Company, but to the Maratha Empire. In 1698, Kanoji Angrim, the illustrious sailor and warrior, was officially made the Sarkhel, the Admiral of the Maratha Navy. He was given the title, a fleet of ships, and seven forts along the west coast from where he was tasked to carry out Maratha taxation schemes on the ships flying the Arabian Sea. Schemes that were totally the opposite of the kind of schemes put together by the European trading companies for the taxation of the ships were going directly to the Maratha emperor and not to any of the European East Indian trading companies. The British tried very hard right from the start to brand Kanoji Angri as an upstart pirate. As early as 1704, Angre was being addressed in British communication as, quote, rebel independent of the Raja Shivaji. After Shivaji's death, Kanoji moved in and out of favour with the reigning Maratha ruler or his prime minister, the Peshwa. Peshwas are the very powerful prime ministers of the Maratha empire and it was a hereditary position. Successive Peshwas aided the Maratha king from the time of Shivaji in the 17th century but by the mid-18th century, Peshwas had gradually become so powerful that they were the de facto rulers of the Maratha empire until the end of the empire in 1818. To understand why the British could easily call Kanoji Angre and his able men pirates, we need to traverse a bit into the politics of the Maratha rulership in the 18th century. When Kanoji Angre was made the Sarkhel or Admiral of the Maratha naval fleet, the Maratha Empire was going through a period of transition and instability. After the death of the founder of the empire, Chhatrapati Shivaji Maharaj, in 1680, his son Sambhaji had ascended the throne. Chhatrapati Sambhaji carried on his father's offensive against the Mughals, for which in the ninth year of his reign, he was caught, tortured and killed by Mughal Emperor Aurangzeb. Following his death, his half-brother Raja Ram came to the throne. And assisting Raja Ram ably was his second wife, Tarabai. It was Raja Ram at his capital at Satra that deputed Kanoji to commandeer the Maratha naval force. So when Raja Ram died quite suddenly, two years after deputing Kanoji, Kanoji must have felt the need to stay loyal to Rajaram's wife Tarabai, who took over the reign of the Maratha Empire. Tarabai subsequently installed her young son Shivaji II as ruler and herself as queen regent. Now here's where things get even more complicated. In 1707, Emperor Aurangzeb died and upon his death, Shahu, the young son of slain Maratha ruler Sambhaji, who had been taken prisoner by the Mughals, was released. Upon Shahu's return, two Maratha factions emerged, 
one in support of Shahu and the other in support of Tarabai. Kanoji belonged to the latter faction that chose to maintain their allegiance to Tarabai. So when Tarabai was eventually ousted, Kanoji appears to have taken the fleet and left the dominion of the Marathas, establishing himself somewhat independently on what is now the Konkan coast in southwestern India. Kanoji Angri made the fort of Gheria or Vijaydurg his capital on the Konkan coast. After he had established himself, he also nominally pledged his allegiance to Tarabai, who by that time had installed her son in a rival Maratha throne in Kolapur. This was the beginning of a long protracted civil war between the Maratha factions, one supporting Tarabai and her son, the other supporting Shahu, the son of slain ruler Sambhaji, which ended somewhat in the defeat of the Tarabai faction. Tarabai, by the way, continued to play an important role in Maratha politics until her death in 1761. After Tarabai was ousted along with her son and Shahu returned to the throne of the Maratha Empire. It was Shahu's new illustrious commander of Or Senkarta, Peshwa Balaji Vishwanath, that successfully convinced Kanuji to switch sides and come back under the umbrella of Shahu's emperorship. In 1714, after Kanuji signed a treaty with Shahu and Peshwa Balaji Vishwanath, he declared Shahu as his Chhatrapati emperor and was anointed once again the admiral of Maratha navy. And like in the reign of Raja Ram, Kanoji seals after 1741 read, quote, Sri Kanoji Angre, son of Tukoji, is forever eager at the feet of Shahu, end quote. This brief deviation, however, of Kanoji's allegiance from the main centre of Maratha power is perhaps why the British decided to treat him as an independent rebel pirate. It is clear from Kanoji's seals, however, that he considered himself allied and under the service of successive Maratha rulers. So, it is safe to say that Kanoji Angri was not a pirate. The British desperately wanted him to be one and considered him so for the express purpose of waging sea battles against his fleet without having to involve the powerful Maratha rulers in these affairs. Once Shahu assumed the throne, stability returned to the Maratha empire. The death of Aurangzeb and his constant warfare in the south had depleted Mughal resources, so the main enemy or focus of Kanoji came to be the rich European ships plying on the Indian coastline. By the 1710s, Kanoji had become practically unstoppable in the Arabian Sea. As early as 1711, the directors of the British East India Company listened in horror as they were informed that the Angre could and did take any vessel from Gujarat up to Dabul except the largest of European ships. When British Governor Boone wrote a threatening letter to Kanoji in 1720, Kanoji replied in a tone that one can assume was laden with derision. In response to the letter... Kanuji wrote a scathing letter to the British that basically insulted them by calling them mere merchants. I do not find the merchants exempt from this sort of ambition, for this is the way of the world. 
For God gives nothing immediately from himself, but takes from one to give to another. Whether this is right or no, who's able to determine? It little behooves merchants to say that our government is supported by violence, insults, and piracies. The Maharaja Shivaji made war with four kings and founded and established his power. This was our beginning. Whether by these means this government had proved durable, your excellency well knows. So likewise did your predecessors. Whether it is durable or no, I would have your excellency consider it is certain nothing in this world is durable. Which, if your excellency does consider, the way of this world is well known. By this time, Kanoji had in his charge 26 forts and a large number of villages associated with these forts, including Kanedi and Kolaba, close to the British harbour of Bombay. He ruled these lands and the sea bordering them from his capital fortress of Gheria, about 300 miles south of Bombay. His impregnable fortresses lined across the shoreline from Vengurla in the south to Bombay in the north spanning an area close to 400 miles. Kanhoji also employed all kinds of people. His best commanders on the sea were Dutch sailors. He even had in his employ pirates like John Plantain, who had turned servicemen. Kanhoji turned out to be indestructible for the British. From 1715 until his death in 1729, Kanoji's forts were attacked a total of six times by the British with absolutely no amount of success. It started with the arrival of the new governor of Bombay, Charles Boone, who was from the start affronted that his company's ships were being ransacked by an Indian pirate. Boone immediately went to work fortifying the town of Bombay and ordered three battleships to be built. In a few months, Britannia with 18 guns, Fame and the Revenge each with 16 guns, and Victory with 24 guns were all seaworthy. In two years, Boone had built an admirable fleet with 19 frigates, grabs, catches, gulbots, and galleys, all different kinds of boats and ships. Altogether, they were capable of carrying 220 guns in addition to a bomb vessel and a fire ship. This was, all this, all these boats, all these guns were expressly to take on the Angri. Except, not once did poor Boone win a gun battle at sea or land. For nearly 15 years, Charles Boone did his best to get the best of Angre. Boone's first attack on the Angre was aimed at his stronghold in Vengurla. He sent fame, Britannia and revenge along with about 10 gulbats, boats that were called gallivats by the English. After spending many days trying to find a safe landing spot, the British bombarded the fortress but it hardly cost a dent. Eventually, two of Boone's officers in charge started fighting with each other from sheer exhaustion and the fleet returned to Bombay with nothing to show for their efforts. Exactly how much did Angre get from looting merchant ships that caused Boone to get so angry? Well, just in 1716, 
Angri's fleet had captured one East India Company ship from near the harbour. Four private ships valued at 30,000 seraphims, a Bombay currency of the time, and one large East India man named Success on its way from Surat. The private ships had refused to pay dues to the Angre's men, and that's why they had been captured. And when the company sent Angre an angry letter, he responded by capturing Otter, a ship from Bengal. In consternation, Boone planned another attack, this time on Angre's capital fortress of Geria. This is how an English official recorded this expedition. We proceeded down the coast for Jerry, which is not above 12 hours sail from Bombay, where we, with all our navy, soon arrived and run boldly into the harbour. Captain Berlu Commodore arranged a line from the easternmost part of the fortifications to the outer part of the harbour keeping all our small galleys and galleywats on the offside under shelter. But they had strong fortifications on both sides, so that we left our strongest ships in the harbour to make a breach in the walls in order to storm the castle. The rocks were very high and so slippery that one could hardly stand without a staff, and consequently not a place convenient to draw men up in any posture of defence. Hold positions. Weapons ready. We endeavoured to get the fire ship in, but could not. For on the east part of the fort, they had a cove or creek, where they had laid up a great part of their fleet, and had got a strong boom across the same, so that we could not annoy them any otherwise than by throwing our bombs and cohorns very thick into the garrison, which we did for a considerable time, and were in hopes, after the first and second day siege, that we should have drove them out of that strong castle, but we soon found that the place was impregnable. For as we keep throwing our shells as fast as we could in regular time, calling our chambers before we loaded again, after we had beat over two or three houses in the castle, the shells fell on the rocks in the inside of the castle, and their weight and force of falling would break them without so much as their blowing up. As to storming the walls, they were so high that our scaling ladders would not near reach the top of them. From the entries of the siege in British officer Gideon's diary, it becomes really clear that the British had no clue that they were being trapped. They did not know the land and Angri knew this, so he drew them in through the only real approach to the fort by firing only a few shots just to make the British believe the Marathas were putting up a fight. After the second day, we landed all our forces, taking the opportunity of the tide. We got them all on shore and marched up the country, without molestation. Only now and then the castle would let fly a shot or two, which did us small damage. Angri knew that the British were going to get stuck in the swamp and that the British would be sitting ducks while on their retreat. We attempted to march the army down to their shipping and to set them on fire. But when we came within a mile of the place, the land was all swampy and so very muddy by the spring tides flowing over that we could not proceed. On our retreat, they galled us very much by firing from the castle, we being obliged to come near the castle walls to take our forces off again. Here, the gallant Captain Gordon was slightly wounded again. I question whether there were a hundred men in the castle during the time of the siege. We drew our forces off on the 18th of April and went up to Bombay to repair our frigates and take care of our wounded men, of whom we had a considerable number. <laughs>
This British description of their failed attack makes it clear that Angre was no pirate. He was a naval leader for sure, but he definitely had training to defend land settlements as well. We must admire Governor Boone's tenacity here. His army had been repulsed twice in a short period by Kanoji Angre's army. But no sooner had the war frigates full of wounded soldiers from Geria landed in Bombay that Boone was preparing for his next attack. This time, he chose close to home at Angre's stronghold at Kaneri on Shashti or Salsit Island, just north of Bombay. Kaneri was a recent acquisition by Angre. He had in 1710 confiscated the islet from the Siddhis of Janjira and fortified it. It must have been quite well fortified or Boone was nervous of another failed attack for the fleet that made its way up the Bombay harbour to Kaneri was perhaps the largest fleet of warships used on the Indian coast up till that point. Aside from four massive East India men warships, there were two gurabs or grabs as the English called it, one frigate, one galley, one ketch, two bomb catchers and 48 gulbats. It took them about six days to assemble and anchor all these vessels in a suitable formation. The show of force and the force of bombardment seemed to have helped somewhat. British officers and soldiers were able to land even though they were constantly being fired upon. Somehow, two captains managed to get their troops up to the gateway of the fortress and began to work at dismantling it. Now, this is where things started going south once again. The courage of one of the captains finally failed and he made a run for it and with him, his troop of British soldiers. Betray! The other brave captain walked up to the gate and fired his pistol at close range, which was a mistake because the bullet rebounded off the gate and struck him right on his nose and he could do nothing but retire hurt. And he too ordered a retreat. Once again, Boone was left with nothing to show for all the effort that he had put into his planning. One reason Boone was so tremendously unsuccessful was because the East India Company and its officers in South Asia were really traders and not army men. The landed elites of the British society mostly went to the Americas in this period looking for more fortune. The crown only too happy to confer them with estates and islands in the West Indies. Those that came to India were mostly working class. The 17th and early 18th century British company servants were men from humble backgrounds. In India, there was no hope at this time to receive land options and profits by trade were largely monopolised to the benefit of the shareholders back in London. The company pay was also not much to write home about. The married ones received a lodging allowance. The unmarried ones were put up by the company and their living conditions were also not that great. The retention rate for the company's employees in the early part of the 18th century was not high at all, and it is no surprise that they could be bought or would switch sides if they found that to be a more lucrative option. The British soldiers were, in the words of one observer, badly armed, badly fed, and badly paid. Kanoji became even more emboldened after the third failed attack at Canary. He started raiding ships, Indian, British, Portuguese, 
whatever came his way that were not carrying dastaks of the licenses issued by the Angre on behalf of the Maratha rulers. Angre's fleet lay so close to the Bombay harbour that Morris, an East India menship, which had taken part in the Canary attack, had to try three times before it could leave the port for its return journey to England. Poone pleaded with the directors to send him a guard ship, which they did, except the officers on board the 60-gun warship St. George got to Bombay and then accidentally wrecked the ship by bringing it too close to shore. But none of this, none of this stopped Boone from trying again and again and again. The next three attacks at Geria, Diogad and Kolaba that Boone planned also ended in failure. Captains aboard the British vessels got drunk, got into fistfights, ran away or were bought by the Angris. The attack on Kolaba was the final piece of straw for Charles Boone. This was a joint attack on Kanoji Angri. The British would attack from sea, they planned, and the Portuguese would attack Angri's property from land. Upon their success, Colaba would be given to Portugal and England would take Angri's capital fort at Geria. Well, it was a heavy defeat for the Europeans. It was so humiliating that the commander on the British side, a short-tempered man not well-liked even by his peers, Thomas Matthews, not only got his thigh pierced with the lance of a lowly Maratha horseman, but upon their defeat got so incensed that he thrust his cane down the mouth of the Portuguese general. Following this, Charles Boone returned to England in 1721 without even one win against the Angri. But he tried. He tried very hard. What made Kanoji Angre so indestructible? I hope by now it's obvious that he had the backing of the powerful Maratha army on land and many of the attacks he repulsed was because of the support of the land forces as well. He must have been a quite a charismatic leader too, considering he even got hardened European pirates like John Plantain to work for him and stay in his service for years on end. He was most definitely a fierce warrior. But he seems to also have been an exceptionally able administrator and strategizer. While we don't know a lot about his lineage, his father was likely a freed African slave who married and settled near the Kohli region on the western coast of India. As a lifelong navigator who started working on ships as a young boy, likely with his father who was also a sailor, Kanoji knew the Arabian Sea like the back of his hand. He was trained by pirates but also by sailors. What Kanoji realized from his training is that Indian sailors relied on more local types of sailing vessels that could navigate closer to the coastline as well as the narrow mouths of rivers that allowed them to sail further inland if needed for protection. He was well aware that these different types of vessels were actually more useful than the larger oceanic sailing vessels and battleships that Europeans typically used on the Indian coastline. 
For example, Kanoji made use of what is called the gurabs or grabs in English, a two or three masted boat that drew very little water and was designed to give speed in the light winds that usually prevailed on India's west coast. Now, if you really want to see what a grab looks like, head over to our website or our Instagram account at Misala History Podcast, where you can find a painting of the attack of Marathas on a British vessel in 1812. In the painting, the boat leading the attack on the British vessel is the grab. And in the foreground of this big vessel, you'll see a smaller vessel with two Latin sails or triangular sails that is called the gulbuds or the gallivats in English. These vessels were made for shallow seas and they were largely plied along the coastline, but they were also made light so that they could be faster and therefore better equipped to attack and then flee. The gulbuts also carried additional crew for support and to carry away plunder. Kanoji also used the techniques frequently used by Indian pirates that were quite simple but inventive and effective. For example, he would move two or three grubs close to the target vessel. When they were sufficiently close, Kanoji's fleet would attack with swords from the prow of their vessels. They also cast stink pods, which were earthen vessels filled with gunpowder and sulfur from the top of their mass to the deck of the ship being attacked, so that it created these fumes that would force the crew to flee the main deck, making it easier for Kanoji's fleet to board the attacked vessel. Kanoji's navy also used cannonade and small shot, slingstones and long lances to attack the enemy vessel. It was a very effective strategy, and if it did not work, the smaller gurabs and gulbats made it easy for the crew to get away quickly and hide in the shallow bays, groves and rivers that dotted the Indian coastline where the big ships could not reach. Part of the problem for poor Governor Boone during his time in Bombay was also that the company was not getting any military support from the Royal Navy. And this was, of course, because England, at the time, was dealing with multiple crises closer home. Not only were they besieged by the unrest that culminated in the first Jacobite uprising in Scotland in 1715, England, allied with Spain and other European powers, were at the time fighting France in the War of the Spanish Succession, which lasted from 1701 to 1714. But when it finally ended with the Treaty of Utrecht in 1715, England was once again free to send its naval force to the Indian Ocean. So in the 1720s, soon after poor Boone's return to England, things started to look up for the British in India. In 1723, a 16-gun Angre vessel was taken by the British after a battle which killed the Dutch commander of the Angre vessel. The same week saw three more Angre vessels captured. The directors also now sent three galleys from London with a crew that was trained for combat, making it even more difficult for the Maratha admiral and his naval crew to get any successes on the Indian seas. These military strategic advances of the British East India Company all but eliminated most of the smaller piratic groups from the Arabian Sea by the 1730s. Kanoji, however, remained undefeated even though his attacks became less successful. 
When he died in 1729, he had not lost any of the forts that were under his command. He had also successfully helped Marathas annex a number of smaller chiefdoms along the Konkan coast. After his death, some of his sons carried on the Angre rule and naval warfare on the western coast of India, but internecine rivalry weakened the Angres over the next couple of decades until the forts were split up amongst two rivaling Angre brothers. The British pitted one Angre brother against the other and eventually got the best of both factions. The last Angre stronghold was Kolaba near Bombay, which was annexed to British India in 1843. Masala History is produced by Deepti Murali and co-hosted by Deepti Murali and Manami Guha. Many thanks to our voice actors, one who shall remain nameless, and the other, Ram Surendran, for voicing Kanoji Angde. The transcript for this episode, along with related images, readings, and other information, is available on our website, www.masalahistory.com. A special note before I say goodbye. We are introducing a new format in the next episode to include more historians to bring their research to us. If you want exciting snippets from the upcoming episodes, do follow us on Instagram at, at Masala History Podcast because that's where we post all our little exciting snippets. See you in the next episode. Bye.